0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My
0: name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And I want to start off today by proposing a scenario for you to imagine. What if your body included a personal search bar... Uh, I know that sounds weird, that might be hard to picture, but just try to imagine your body, your physical body, has a digital interface that maybe anybody within 100 feet of you can access. What if your physical body included a searchable database of pretty much everything you ever did or posted on the internet? So whether you're out at a bar with your friends or you're sitting on the subway on your way to work or you're sitting in your car in traffic or taking part in a protest march or working out of the gym or you're on a date, whatever – Anybody who could see you would instantly have the ability to look up your personal information. They could find out your name, your resume, your contact info, your workplace, home address, maybe find all publicly available photos of you that are out there on Instagram or whatever, Uh, maybe everything you've ever posted on Twitter or on Facebook or whatever other social media. And more broadly – basically just everything you've done on the internet, purchasing history, search history, uh, as well as your location history, anywhere you've physically taken your phone with GPS enabled. I think most of us would probably recoil in horror at the idea that we would ever lose the ability to be anonymous in a public place. But perhaps the horrifying part of imagining this scenario is that I think what I'm describing is not only fairly plausible, in some preliminary ways, this is already the case, at least in principle. All the foundations and support structure of this horrible hypothetical world are laid, and really all that's left to do is just kind of tighten the screws on it.
1: And one thing we know about this world is that there
0: there's no shortage of would-be screw tighteners out there. Nope. Uh, especially if you can make some money by tightening screws, which you very often can. Uh, so yeah, we, we should already know that there is very little privacy in the modern technology sphere. Our phones, our social media accounts, our advertiser IDs, which are used to track us across the internet, th- these sources are already used to create profiles in which the you know disparate types of our personal identifying information get correlated with each other and used to serve us ads or manipulate us on social media. But the leap into physical space where all of our information is easily linked now to our physical body, wherever we are, whether we like it or not, is the frontier that's currently being pushed and at a very rapid pace – Now, there are multiple ways to make this link, of course, Uh, you know, so linking our digital profiles and all the, the associated data with our physical bodies. A very simple one would be with the tracking devices that pretty much all of us carry with us at all times, the Mac addresses on our phones and our mobile devices. But one of the most powerful developing techniques is for the technosphere to recognize you in physical space the same way that your friends and your family do, by your face. Now, one thing to
1: keep in mind about this is that, of course, just because, say, you're a thermostat in your house – can recognize your face that is not necessarily in and of itself a bad thing in some cases that could be uh, very helpful or even it could be seen as a way to uh, you know to safeguard the the, the, the temperature of your home uh, that sort of thing like you could have some sort of a, a security feature and as we as we proceed through these episodes we 're going to try and keep that in mind're we 're going to try not to color the technology as inherently vile <laughs> or inherently uh, uh prone to misuse but the story of technology is that it is both uh, light and dark
0: well yeah and the i think there is a big difference between something being inherently vile versus prone to misuse mm-hmm. there are a lot of things that are that are created with perfectly good intentions in mind you can think of lots of great reasons to do most of the worst technological stuff imaginable. Uh, you know, we, we've talked before on the show, we, we make no secret our distaste for a lot of things about social media. But of course, you know, you can see the good side of something like Facebook.
1: Yeah, or very broadly, you could think of something like banking. Yeah, uh, Banking uh, in many respects uh, allows humans to do uh, uh, amazing things, uh, things they wouldn't or otherwise be able to do uh, to buy larger, um, uh, you know, pro- to buy a property you know to buy a vehicle to start a business start a business and so forth but then at the same time very terrible things have been done and are, are still being done under the, the broad tent of banking.
0: Yeah, and we can help better protect ourselves from those outcomes by better understanding banking so that we can regulate it properly, mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't always get done. But you know, that the, at least in theory, that is the way to protect yourself. And so today we're going to be taking that same point of view to a series of episodes about facial recognition, science and technology. And this is a subject I've wanted to talk about for a while uh, because obviously this is an issue. Of increasing significance today. Uh, but uh, actually, just after we landed on this topic, I came across a brand new story in the New York Times that serves as a really good anchor on why this issue is incredibly relevant today. And this article is called "The Secretive Company That Might End Privacy as We Know It" by Kashmir Hill, published in the New York Times, January eighteenth, twenty
1: twenty. Yeah, it uh, it concerns a, a small technology company called Clearview AI, which uh, you know just the
0: title of that it. it Sounds like it could be fine, right? Sounds very transparent, doesn't it? Right, yeah. Clearview AI. Uh, But of course, this is a facial recognition-based artificial intelligence company. Uh, So so what is Clearview in their own words? What do they say about themselves Uh, to read from their marketing materials? Quote, Clearview is a new research tool used by law enforcement agencies to identify perpetrators and victims of crimes. Clearview's technology has helped law enforcement track down hundreds of at-large criminals, including pedophiles, terrorists, and sex traffickers. It is also used to help exonerate the innocent and identify the victims of crimes, including child sex abuse and financial fraud.
1: Now, on the surface of things, that sounds absolutely airtight, right? It, It describes a technology that is used by the appropriate agencies to protect the innocent and to go after the guilty. Um, But then again that can be used to
0: sell a lot of things uh, in the world. Of course. Uh, So what they advertise is that this app helps law enforcement identify perpetrators and protect victims of crime. And of course, in some cases, that may very well be true. Obviously, it would be pointless to deny that facial recognition technology, the ability to take a picture of somebody's face and then find out tons of stuff about who they are and how you can find them, you know, be pointless to deny that in many cases that would be useful and beneficial. Official to law enforcement. But it is also, of course, just so easy to see how a tool like this could be terrible both in its successes and in its failures. So, first of all, of course, it could fail in catastrophic ways, say with like false matches when police are looking for a perpetrator. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, you know, that's something that can happen with human witnesses too, right? right. Uh, but then uh, it could also be used effectively if it correctly identifies people to amazingly insidious ends. So how does it work? Uh, it's actually – it sounds pretty simple in terms of its user interface. Specifically, what this tool does is it matches an input photo of a face with a huge database of existing photos scraped from the internet. And then it will provide links to the places that those images from the internet were originally found. So a very simple example, I take a photo of you. And then I feed it into the tool, and then it comes back with other photos of you and links to the places where those photos were found, maybe your Facebook page, a YouTube video you're in, and so forth. And so when it works, it will provide a direct link between your anonymous face from a picture and the digital locations where all of your personal information may be logged online. Now we're not going to look too far under the hood of exactly how uh, the you know the underlying technology of this sort of thing works right now uh, there are a number of ways that facial recognition algorithms can actually work, but a very common way is using neural networks
1: yes and uh, and, and for this uh, for, for like a nice succinct uh, description of how this works, uh, I'd like to refer to Max tegmark's uh, most recent book life 3.0, which deals at length with AI and the i the potential the even the threats posed by AI, by AI in the future it's a it's a, it's a wonderful book but uh, in, in this this one section he's just uh, summarizing um, how this kind of facial recognition works uh, and he writes uh, that uh, neural networks have been quote trained to input numbers representing the probability that the image depicts various people here each artificial neuron and on uh, on a, an illustration they're depicted as uh, circles computes a weighted sum of the numbers sent into it via connections, or lines in this image, uh, from above, applies a simple function and passes the results downward, each subsequent layer of computing higher-level features typical face recognition network contain hundreds of thousands of neurons. Uh, the figure shows merely a handful for clarity. So uh, in the, the, the visual representation that Tegmark includes here, you see the, the, all these circles and interconnected lines uh, representing how the, you know, the neural network uh, is functioning. But then it, it begins, uh, it, then we apply this to the facial features. It starts with, with sort of general features and sort of blurry shapes and then to more specific features and then tying those features together and then eventually getting to uh, an output probability of actual facial matches.
0: Yeah, and as with many other neural networks that are trained on large data sets to, you know, match values together or produce an output Y given Mm -hmm. input X, uh, you know, uh, given a training method there will often so the way these things are trained is that you you know you feed them a lot of examples of the kind of output you want and slowly they refine their own rules internally the rules that happen at each of these layers of neurons to manipulate numbers and values as they pass through the neural network in order to give the output that closely matches whatever you've trained it to come up with uh but that that means that like you can train potentially an effective neural network without yourself really understanding very well exactly what's happening at each layer throughout the the network. Now, I think it is possible to like sort of get in there and try to dig into it and and see what's going on if you've really got the time and expertise, uh, but, but it can be relatively opaque as far as computer programs go. It, it doesn't necessarily work like a normal computer program that has lines of code that any programmer who knows the language can read through and figure out what's going on easily. But to come back to the Kashmir Hill article and uh, – uh, Clearview AI. Uh, One thing that's important to point out is that this is by no means the first facial recognition app or tool, nor is it the first used by law enforcement. Uh, Its particular value, the, the thing that it's doing that's somewhat new, is in its database of images, which again have been scraped from organic sources like Facebook and YouTube. Previously, law enforcement facial recognition matching programs were often weaker and more limited to smaller databases of government photos, say mugshots or driver's licenses. And of course, there's the potential that, you know, smaller uh, training or matching material will make any machine learning process weaker at, at coming up with the results you want.
1: Yeah, all this kind of ties in with what I often think of as kind of like this tidal pool illusion of the internet. Uh, that feeling that a lot of us had I think esp- still have sometimes, but also especially early on, this feeling that we were engaging in something segmented from the general population you know? but the, the thing about tide pools, of course, is that eventually the tide rolls in, and you realize that you 're actually connected to the wider internet, uh, so you know, not just your friends or your family or your fandom, but also uh, you know law enforcement criminals, uh, politics uh, all just churning around. In the
0: same grim ocean of numbing obscenity. Uh, I think that's a really excellent metaphor. Yeah, there is some somehow the internet was very easily able to create a sense of isolated, walled-off gardens that we were living in, which were at the time totally public. Mm -hmm. You know, um, early days of various social networking sites, fan forums, all that kind of thing, you know, whatever it was that gave people a sense that they were in a a little private space, you know, their little corner, their little room. But of course it's the internet. What's happening there is public and the consumers of what's happening there may be completely invisible to you.
1: Right. So... In this case, with these the previous models of uh, facial uh, identification, the data sets they were depending on were basically tidal pools, like here's the tidal pool of, of mugshots, here's the driver's license uh, tidal pool, and that's what we're feeding on. But basically, Clearview comes around, and this is a company that is saying, well, let's just use the the whole ocean. What's stopping us from using the whole ocean? So this is a company using the assets of various social media and, in general, visual media companies on the web to do the sorts of things that those companies— have been loath to do or have at least been you know publicly opposed to doing, because technically as as pointed out in hill's new york Times article um you know there is there is an argument that what they are doing here what what this company and any company that's that's engaging in this kind of like broad sampling that they may be uh violating the terms of service for these various websites
0: sure, yeah, automatically scraping imagery and data from Facebook say i think. There was at least the allegation that that could be uh, a violation of Facebook's terms of service, uh, but it didn't really seem to bother the Clearview people.
1: <laughs> right, right. And I think when uh, Hill reached out to Fa- a Facebook representative, they said, well, we may look into that. And so it's kind of an, an open question. Uh-huh. But uh, you know, a lot of this also comes down to something we discussed in our, our look at Jaron uh, uh, Lanier's 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. Uh, Because it concerns your data, data that you have in all likelihood given away to companies like Facebook, Twitter and others simply to be a part of the interconnectedness that they sold us. Now, a lot of the time when we're discussing such data, we are discussing behavioral information, right? Your likes, your dislikes, your arousal patterns concerning posts and advertisements. Mm-hmm. But in addition to this, you also uh, sold the devil your face. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, he's, the devil in this case is simply promising not to do anything unbecoming with your face. <laughs> But uh, but hell is highly populated. Even if you have good reason to trust this particular devil to which you've already entrusted your face and perhaps the faces of your family members, your loved ones, deceased loved ones, your children, uh, you know, there are countless others that uh, that will make no such promises. Steal and, your face right off your head. <laughs> yeah. And and they may have little concern for, you know, the values that were in place
0: during the initial purchase. It's something that I think about coming up again and again with uh, sharing data on the internet. So you share your data with a company and you maybe trust that company today Mm -hmm. to protect your data. Uh, But what if – so say that company hangs on to your data for a while and then they get new management that you don't trust as much but they've got it. Uh, You you can't get it back or maybe they have a security breach and somebody just happens to steal your data from them. It's like, well, you would have trusted the company maybe but now somebody else has got it. And you can see how in a world like that – it it could start to feel like maybe hopeless or pointless or futile for people who say are in a position to make money off of not being very careful about people's privacy. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, what's the point? Everything eventually gets out there anyway. And this kind of point of view was sort of articulated by some of the people quoted in Hill's article. For example, there's a figure named David Scalzo who was an early investor, an investor in this company, Clearview AI. Uh, And Scalzo is quoted in the article saying, I've come to the conclusion that because information constantly increases, there's never going to be privacy. Laws have to determine what's legal, but you can't ban technology. Sure, that might lead to a dystopian future or something, but you can't ban it. (laughs) (laughs) So you know, uh, this is at, at once one of those
1: statements that seems very pragmatic, but also entirely self-serving because true, the story of technology is that its advance cannot really be stopped. You have to think ahead as best we can and prepare our laws and our moral code to dealing with emerging technologies. We've talked about this before, uh, for instance, in as far as genetic uh, technology is concerned. Yeah. But this particular quote also sounds a lot like, hey, it's going to happen either way. So I might as well be the person to make some
0: money off of it. I totally agree. I mean it- – I agree that it is difficult to stop technological progress, that if – You know, if one group of people isn't working on it, maybe a less ethical group of people might be somewhere. But that's not an excuse to be the person who creates the synthetic super virus that, you know, who like genetically engineers Captain Tripp's flu or whatever. Like, uh, also you could use this logic about almost any bad thing. It's kind of like saying, yeah, you know, there's no way to totally eliminate pollution. Some people are always going to find a way to pollute and harm the environment. So you might as well just go hog wild, just dump it all. Uh, Like, so it's true that you can't stop everything harmful to the environment with regulation, but you can really slow it down. You can present major obstacles to the worst types of offenses. And likewise, I I think it would be very difficult to completely stop the advancing capabilities of AI, including facial recognition. Uh, But you can certainly slow it. You can certainly limit its potentially harmful uses by banning those uses and punishing offenders. Now, on the other hand, you could think – Well, yeah, you could do that, but this would be so helpful to law enforcement in some cases. You know, so would the ability to search any house you wanted without a warrant, right? Right.
1: I mean, this is the same argument that has uh, often uh, been part of uh, the reasoning for uh, enhanced interrogation uh, and torture is that, well, it can help us get – the bad guys. It can help us in this situation. And then also in all of these arguments, there's also the um, the idea that, well, if you have nothing to hide, if you are truly a, a, a good and a supportive member of society, then what do you have to, what do you have to worry about anyway? Uh, but but it kind of comes down to the data issue. Well, you trust the person who has your data now, but do you trust the person who have your data tomorrow? You trust the uh, the government of today, but governments change.
0: Yeah, I mean, and no nobody actually in practice believes this. What do you have to hide? Argument. Yeah. it's just something you would. I mean, like if anybody ever says that, just immediately demand them to give you their email <laughs> password. I mean, like yeah, just let me read all your email. I mean, yeah. what's the problem? Yeah, wallet inspector, right? <laughs> I think. You'll Find everything in order <laughs> uh, But yeah, so I mean obviously societies often decide to regulate police power in ways that to, I mean that are truly inconvenient to law enforcement uh, because they decide that in some cases there are types of privacy and other civil liberties that matter more than prosecuting offenses at the maximum efficiency.
1: Yeah all right, well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break.
0: OK, we're back. Uh, so again, we're in the middle of the, this first episode of this exploration we're doing of, uh, the, of facial recognition science and technology. And we've been talking about this New York Times article that just came out last week by Kashmir Hill about a uh, facial recognition technology company called Clearview AI.
1: Now, broadly speaking, the two big advantages uh, of of, uh, Clearview AI are that it, uh, first of all, pulls from an extensive database of images. So we're talking three billion photos in a database versus the 411 million searchable through the FBI's database. These uh, stats according to Clearview marketing materials reviewed uh, by Kashmir Hill for that New York Times article. And then secondly, it boasts a robust enough facial recognition engine built up from academic work by others on artificial intelligence, image recognition, and machine learning, um, that it, uh, and it and it and it does not require high quality or complete facial images to produce matches. So, like the, you know, the I guess the ideal example would be you could have somebody going into a bank and robbing it with their face partially covered, and then this would potentially be able to match that partial face to a full face on, say, a Facebook profile.
0: At least according to what the company and some of its satisfied customers in law enforcement have been alleging.
1: Yeah, like one example of a successful match that Hill mentions uh, is uh, uh, matching uh, an individual to a face in a mirror in someone else's gym photo. What? Yeah, and uh, – you know details of the uh, you know presumed guilt or in- innocence of that particular individual aside. I think this is notable in that gyms are often considered to be photo taboo places. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it certainly, as far as like other people working out in the gym go, you know this is. Uh, I'm, I'm not you know an expert on gym etiquette, but it is my understanding that you shouldn't even, you know, accidentally photograph someone else in a gym, but obviously it does happen. Uh, It just, it just shows you-
0: should not have your phone out snapping pics at the gym. Right. Unless it's, unless it's your private gym and you're the only person there.
1: Yeah. Or unless it catches bad guys, because what do you have to hide? (laughs)
0: Um, uh, That being said, the, the, the people at the company do admit that, of course, like, you know, it, it still has flaws. There are still things it can't do. Yeah, like, for instance,
1: a lot of it is leaning on eye-level photos, the kind of photos that you see in, say, a LinkedIn profile photo, as opposed to the sort of ceiling-level security camera footage that that is often involved in these scenarios, right?
0: Right. Uh, Yeah, I mean, and so it's running into the same kind of problems that – we could talk about this later in the episode – that human beings sometimes have with less familiar faces. I Mm -hmm. mean, this is a – uh, a known thing about human face perception and facial recognition within the brain is that uh, we are much better at recognizing very familiar faces under unfavorable conditions, so like a partial face, a face at a weird angle, a face in bad lighting. We can do that a lot better if it's a familiar face than if it's a relatively unfamiliar face.
1: Right. I mean, even things like our face in a mirror versus our face in a photo, <laughs> you know, yeah. things like that can be distorting or if you yeah, – or more more directly, I find it with someone else's face reflected in a mirror. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm definitely not used to seeing that. And that will throw me off sometimes.
0: Do you ever do the inversion test? This is another weird quirk of, of the brain, trying to see if you recognize photos of people's heads upside down.
1: Mm, uh, I know we've talked about that before in the podcast, but I haven't really put it to the test in my own life. <laughs>
0: There's a – this is just a total side note. There's a very funny thing uh, known as the Thatcher effect. Mm -hmm. It has to do with um, the fact that – so if you – Look at somebody's head upside down but with their eyes right side up. Mm -hmm. A lot of times people look at that and they don't even notice anything's wrong with the photo. Oh, wow. Uh, So like the head is upside down but the eyebrows are like over the eyes because the eyes are still in the correct orientation. Um, But then if you flip that whole thing to where the head is right side up but the eyes are upside down, it looks unbelievably grotesque. (laughs) Like you will burst out. You'll make noise when you see it. Uh. Look it up. Thatcher effect. But anyway, uh, back to the story about Clearview. So uh, the company claims its product finds matches for an input photo up to 75% of the time. But of course, uh, Hill notes in the article that we can't be sure how often false matches turn up. Uh, She quotes Claire Garvey, who is a researcher at Georgia University's uh, Center on Privacy and Technology, who says, quote, we have no data to suggest this tool is accurate. The larger the database, the larger the risk of misidentification because of the doppelganger effect. They're talking about a massive database of random people they found on the internet.
1: The doppelganger effect uh, being not that. That um not that vengeful German spirits are are actually invading uh, the database, but that uh, there's there 's just a, uh, going to be uh, the larger the, the pool of people, the more people they're going to look uh, very much like like others. There's going to be uh, more similarity between an increasing a pool of individuals.
0: Right. Uh, but at the same time, anecdotal reports from a number of law enforcement officers have claimed that this tool was effective at identifying real perpetrators from photos alone. And there have been plenty of other examples in recent years of supposedly effective facial recognition technology provided by other companies that have been used to uh, to allegedly capture perpetrators of, of crimes. Done in public places in New York, in the UK, certainly, you know, in in countries with a very strong surveillance state like in China. And we can come back to more about that in, in later episodes, I think. But as a personal anecdote in this reported story, Hill at one point has the company's founder use the app on a picture of her, and she claims that the tool, quote, "...returned numerous results dating back a decade, including photos of myself that I had never seen before. Mm. When I used my hand to cover my nose and the bottom of my face, the app still returned seven correct matches for me." So I I think we can assume that failures, including both false negatives and false positives, are surely occurring at some rate – but it's also clear that this thing at least works some of the time.
1: Yeah, and that's enough to to help it get picked up by law enforcement. Also, you know, it helps that there was a. It seems like there was a pretty sizable outreach uh, campaign from the company to 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 uh, market the technology to law enforcement.
0: Yes, and and we should say, I mean, uh, we're not going to hash out everything they get into in the article, but the, the company has it arrived at law enforcement as their primary customers. Before that, they tried to market it in all kinds of ways, including, you know, for like personal uh, use, like private security things, and for like commercial use, and Mm -hmm. even in like political opposition research and stuff.
1: Yeah, but this, uh, uh, but but you can definitely see the advantage to law enforcement here, because a detective, for instance, has at their disposal a number, a, a limited number of talents and tools that are useful in attempting to solve a case. And adding this to the, the to the toolkit is no brainer because you know larger issues of stability of the platform aside, you know some of these legal issues, we potential legal issues we were discussing earlier, um, you know this would be something you could use in Congress with other techniques. You know you could say, all right, this face seems to match up with this individual. Uh, we also know that this individual was in the correct uh, you know vicinity at the time. You know you could lean on your other uh, detective tools then to uh, to actually make the case. That's not to say there's not potential for misuse here, but uh, I'm just saying you can you can definitely see the appeal and how if everything's working perfectly, it would be an effective law enforcement tool,
0: yeah, and however effective it actually is, it's clear that this and similar tools are increasingly popular with law enforcement in countries all over the world. If you're one of those people who feels like pumping the brakes on this kind of technology, what could actually be done about it? Uh, well, he'll quote somebody named Al Ghadari, a privacy professor at Stanford Law School, who says bluntly, quote, absent of very strong federal privacy law, we're all screwed. <laughs> uh, and he's not alone. Now, there are plenty of privacy experts today advocating the point of view that facial recognition technology or at least some specific uses of it aren't just something that maybe we should be a little concerned about. They're something that needs to be banned outright. Um, For example, Hill also quotes somebody named Woodrow Hartzog who is a professor of law and computer science at Northeastern University. Uh, And Hartzog says, quote, we've relied on industry efforts to self-police and not embrace such a risky technology. But now those dams are breaking because there's so much money on the table. I don't see a future where we harness the benefits of of face recognition technology without the crippling abuse of the surveillance that comes with it. The only way to stop it is to ban it. Hmm. So whether we should do that or if so, what form that ban should take, what whatever is the best way to address it, uh, I, I think it, it is at least clear that this is a very pressing and uh, like time-sensitive issue that, that is a, of urgent public concern right now.
1: Yeah, because again, as the author points out, I don't think any of us want to live in a world where any stranger can, you know, surreptitiously take a photo of our face and then face search us and get all this data on us. You know, I, I don't want... For us to build that kind of world for our children, who more than any of us never had a chance to opt out of this uh, this face trade, you know, yeah, and that's de- that's depressing to think about, you know, because because you're not thinking about that when you. When you share images of your child on um, on Facebook or Instagram or whatever it happens to be, um, you know you you just you're, you're wanting to, to celebrate that this person exists at all, but you're you're laying the groundwork from like you know age zero onward, right? Uh, like this is their the digital history.
0: We were talking before we came into the studio about, like, if a person wanted to do something about this, what could you do? You can't unpost photos of yourself and data that has already been scraped. But I wonder if maybe you could try to gum up the works by constantly just polluting the internet with false pictures of you that are not you.
1: So you're like sort of uh, like deep faking enough to where um, you've obscured the visual record of yourself.
0: Maybe, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like if – I guess it would then depend on uh, all those new images being taken in and causing enough confusion in the identification of you. But I don't know. Hmm.
1: Or perhaps like altering your facial appearance with enough regularity that there is – no concise version of you or, or at least making it to where then the, the AI would have to work a lot harder. It would have to have like a broader definition of what you look like to the point that maybe it skews with uh, – you know, maybe it enhances the doppelganger effect. Like I'm thinking about, you know, like you just – you know, each day you inject a different portion of your face with collagen or something or, <laughs> or, or maybe not collagen but maybe uh, just say – Trevor
0: Burrus Well, I mean does this lead to – I mean this sounds – Ridiculous. But does this lead to a future where everybody starts walking around with a broad array of interchanging masks?
1: Yeah. And or, and then you have an enhanced uh, um, laws against the wearing of masks. I mean, uh, masks are outlawed in a lot of places and, right. uh, and uh, a lot of events for, for a reason. Yeah.
0: You're not supposed to drive a car wearing a mask. That's <laughs>
1: – <laughs> um, yeah, this does remind me uh, there is a, there's an excellent uh, show on Hulu titled Future Man uh, mm-hmm. that is a it's, it's a it's a comedy it's a satire with a lot of nostalgia for various uh, you know sci-fi franchises uh, but there is a, a scene in one of the episodes where an individual knows that a facial recognition s- system is looking for him mm. so he gets himself beat up first so that his face is then all swelled and distorted and, it, and then it cannot make a match for him and he's able to sneak past the guards.
0: I don't think that's a sustainable strategy, Robert. <laughs> it's not, and more to the point,
1: yeah, we should not even we should not have to even entertain that possibility to uh, to hold on to uh, you know our sense of privacy.
0: Yeah. Uh, now, the fact that we're talking about this story in the New York Times about Clearview is it's just a result of timing. It's like this one specific company is not the entirety of the end of privacy problem nor of the facial recognition technology landscape in particular. Uh, another company could do the same thing. Other copycats, I'm sure, are already getting in there. Uh, it's just one high-profile example of, of the potential already being put to use that uh, th- that's getting a lot of attention in the past couple weeks.
1: Yeah, uh, in part, 2 You'll have to read the full article for the details, but it's also like there are key individuals that are known notable, that are tied into its funding.
0: Yes, uh, there's that. And, and, of course, there's the, the ominous way it ends, which is the idea that it will soon probably be rolled out not just to law enforcement, but to be a publicly usable app, you mm-hmm. know, which I guess is the sort of the scenario we were describing at yeah. the beginning of the episode, just having a, a publicly available personal search bar tool. Yeah, well, well, mark me down for being against that. Yes. All right, time to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. All right, we're back. So, of course, I also want to make the case that facial recognition technology is not necessarily always a a dangerous or scary or ominous thing. I mean, I think there are some uses of it that one could quite easily find benevolent or even delightful. And one of the ways I I was thinking about this was many of its developing uses in non-human animals, not all, because some of its uses in non-human animals are also, like, kind of horrifying but some of the ones in non-human animals are pretty great I, I was reading an article in uh, New York Magazine from October 2018 called Here's a List of Every Animal Humans Currently Monitor Using Facial Recognition Technology <laughs> by uh, Mac DeGarren uh, as a complete list it is probably wildly out of date at this point because this was 2018 but a few of the entries include things like uh, there's a Norwegian fish farming company called Surmac Group AS that commissioned a system for facial recognition 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 of salmon, which would use distinctive patterns of spots around the eyes, mouth, and gills of individual salmon to build individual digital medical records associated with each fish. Hmm. And this would be for the purpose of fighting epidemics of parasitic sea lice primarily. Oh okay.
1: So not merely just presenting it with uh with the the dish when you order it at a restaurant. Like, <laughs> I will take the uh the baked salmon and uh, please include its complete medical history.
0: Yes. Uh this salmon was named Jeffrey. Here's his Facebook <laughs> profile. You know he, on on Salmon Facebook. Oh, but that comes back. Uh, Of course, facial recognition technology is being deployed uh, to keep individual track of all kinds of livestock like cows and chickens uh, for maybe medical reasons or reasons having to do in in the case of cows, reasons having to do with tracking like periods of peak milk output and stuff like that. Uh, But there are also stories about conservation efforts to non-invasively monitor wild populations of vulnerable animals by way of facial recognition, which Hmm. if that works, that sounds Awesome! Like I, I was looking at a 2015 article in Scientific American that described efforts to use facial recognition to track wild lions through a platform called the Lion Identification Network of Collaborators, or LINK.
1: Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, it reminds me of I, I want to say like a decade ago, maybe a little little further back in, in time. Uh, there was a, a piece I read about tracking uh, whale sharks, Mm. and whale sharks all have, you know, distinctive patterns on their, uh, you know, sort of the top of their heads, uh, that area. And uh, you know it doesn't mean anything, you know, much to human eyes. But uh, I think at the time they were utilizing NASA technology that was aimed at uh, making sense of of the stars, hmm. uh, the astronomical um, uh, computation systems, to then to make sense and sort of track, um, uh, identify, at any rate, uh, these various whale sharks. Wow. So this would, but th- this sort of thing would be, I think, an even better method of doing that because because you're, you're probably dealing with uh, with creatures in all these cases that uh, you know there's a they. Definitely are not all identical. There are differences, but we just may not have the eye for it, whereas technology uh, can can be used as, say, the sharper eye for chicken identity.
0: Exactly. And, you know, it has the advantage of not having to physically tag the animal in mm-hmm. some way, which can be difficult to do or it can be harmful to the animal.
1: Right. Or, or dangerous to the, um, uh, the individuals doing the tagging.
0: Yeah. Um, and so apparently – so you've got this one with lions, the link project. But there are similar things that have been attempted with tigers, elephants, even whales. You mentioned whale sharks but with like actual mammal whales with a project that an article in The Atlantic called Facebook for Whales <laughs> – Huh. So I hope it's not as addictive for whales as it is for humans. Yeah. That was a joke, but you didn't <laughs> laugh. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but uh, similar technologies have been uh, proposed and tested to help link people with lost pets, including cats and dogs. That seems like a great use of this.
1: Yeah, like you know, certainly I'm on enough uh, social media boards where uh, there are pet owners, and you know, occasionally a pet will go missing, and then there's mm-hmm. this whole back and forth where it's like, like, oh, my, my orange cat is missing. That it looks like this, and then somebody would be like, well, does he look like this? And I think I saw him in the backyard, and someone else is like, oh, I think I saw him over here across town, and nobody can. Be for sure, right? because mm-hmm. it's hard to get uh, close to a stray cat in some cases or, or an escaped cat or a feral cat that is then misidentified as a lost cat. Uh, but if you had the ability, if you had some sort of app infrastructure where uh, your your cat's missing, fine, you upload them to this database, and then when someone finds a cat, they just take a picture of it and it tells you if that cat is missing like that would be that would be great. That would cut out a lot of the the, the anguish and the the work that goes with uh, having a runaway pet.
0: I I agree. That sounds great. And maybe I'm suffering from a lack of imagination, but I'm I'm thinking in cases like that. That's a case where I think the the risks to the cat's privacy would be far outweighed by the benefits of of people finding their lost animals. Right? Because we know how cats are. They don't give a damn about privacy.
1: Now they ha- yeah. They have a whole different uh, set of. Uh set of values. Now, um, another sort of quirk of, um, of timing here. Uh, as we were putting this episode together, in fact, as we were sort of finishing our notes for this episode this morning, uh, I actually read a new blog post. Uh, uh, titled "Depth of Field Fails" by uh, Janelle Shane at AIWeirdness.com.
0: Oh, we've talked about uh, her blog on the show before because uh, it came up in the pair of episodes we did called "Flatus Ex Machina," mm-hmm. which was about why it's so funny when machines fail.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. This is, and I imagine a lot of you have encountered, uh, you know, the the, the various uh, scenarios she's run with, like AI's coming up with names for Halloween costumes or mm-hmm. names for. I think at one point like, she's, they, they were using it to come up with. not only names, but actual... um uh, recipes for cocktails.
0: Yes, uh, recipes for foods. Also, yep. names for dishes. Uh, we, we talked about D and D character biographies oh, generated. Yes, and, and spells. Names for spells. Remember, mm-hmm. uh, remember, song of the darn and oh, yes. daving fire. Yeah, there's even one about cat names. But in this particular
1: uh, post, um, uh, Shane, the, the research scientist, she tests out the facial recognition AI that is employed by Skype for its blur my background for all calls feature. Mm-hmm. Now, the curious thing about this is, I've been using Skype. We've been using Skype here on the show for years for interviews, and I guess I just I don't dig in deeply enough or read emails uh, because I didn't realize this was a feature at all
0: until today. I, th- I think we always let somebody smarter than us figure out how to use <laughs> Skype, and then we'll just do the talking. But but it but it totally makes sense as a feature because. Perhaps
1: you do have an ideal environment set up for a call with a business friendly background behind you, but maybe you don't. Maybe you have a fridge with a bunch of notes stuck to it with magnets, and maybe mm. some of those are like bills or, you know, uh, or they have some data on there that you you wouldn't even want there to be a chance somebody might be able to decipher it.
0: Or a bookshelf full of occult tomes that you don't <laughs> want people to know you've been researching. That
1: that's a good one. Or uh, perhaps you're at work and there's a marker board full of uh, um, uh, you know, of data back there it might be something you don't want out, or perhaps you have some distracting art up there on the wall, and you don't want to compromise the interior of your own home uh so that you can do a skype call. you don't want to have to like take things off the wall in order to do this,
0: or you're in one of those weird Roman mass toilets. <laughs>
1: Whatever the case may be, the AI then can auto blur all of that out for you. Uh, but to do so, it has to be able to tell the difference between the face of the collar and mere objects in the background. Uh, and it's, in this case, the AI's definition of a face is pretty broad. As Shane discovers, it will uh, allow ancient Egyptian illustrations to, uh, to come through unblurred. Uh, to well, be the face. Yeah, to is. be the face. It's okay. like, okay, this call is being made by uh, this uh, individual from ancient Egypt. By
0: ISIS. By yeah.
1: ISIS. <laughs> uh, But also increasingly um, abstract depictions of a human face. Uh, so it showed various works of art and some of them were really abstract. And it was like, all right, that's a face. Sure, that'll work. Just like Monk, the Scream. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, also, stuffed giraffes. It had a problem with the uh, like uh, the, the horns of the giraffe, but but not so much the face of the stuffed giraffe. Uh, it gets a little confused with life size plastic skeletons, <laughs> uh, however, and also cats can throw it off as well. But uh, so it, uh, do check out that, that blog post. It's it's amusing uh, and also insightful. Uh, but all of this is certainly, I think, an example of facial recognition AI doing something that's not only helpful but could actually help you with your privacy.
0: Yeah. Now, one thing I think that would be different there is that that's facial recognition in the sense of recognizing a face as right. opposed to a background versus recognizing whose face a
1: picture is of. Right. But then again, you could easily imagine like that being an upgrade or, or being a situation situation where if you had a ro- more robust um, facial recognition um AI that was then used on some sort of Skype-like system, mm-hmm. you might actually go ahead and have a feature where the caller's face was logged, and therefore it would blur out any face that was not the authorized user's face. Oh, so that yeah. way of, um, you know, there are other employees walking by in the background getting coffee, they're not going to show up on your call. If your, you know, significant other walks by in the background, they're not going to show up on the call, etc. cetera.
0: So even with this, I mean, when I'm in these kind of scenarios in my head, i I'm always wondering if there are freaky applications that I'm just not being imaginative enough to to get to yet.
1: Well, let me put on my black mirror neural lace cap for a second and think. <laughs> um, how about a simple case where law enforcement wants to access an unblurred background? Now, I'm not sure to what extent that's even possible with this technology. But what if, say, uh, you know, a government agency made a claim for a need to override the auto-blurring features utilized by others? So they would just have blanket uh, power to do this.
0: So you think you're blurring your background, but actually you're yeah, – somebody if, can see yeah, it. Yeah,
1: not if you're on the, the phone with, um, you know, with with a, with someone who's actually, a, you know, a government employee or whoever happens to have the magic key in this scenario.
0: Oh, I guess it's kind of like how you think you can have your phone turned off or you think – you can have GPS turned off, but in fact, it is still location tagging.
1: Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. And again, uh, I don't have a, de- a detailed enough knowledge of this particular software. I'm not saying not, – not, not applying this directly to the Skype scenario here, but just sort of thinking in general. Um, now, in, in this particular case, I'm also assuming that the broad definition of a face is in place, at least in part, to avoid situations where a human being's face is blurred because the AI can't handle, say, facial disfiguration. Because I think we can understand why we wouldn't want an AI like this to lean heavily on norms to promote ideals about uh, who and who doesn't have a face. Sure, Though uh, this, the, in considering this with facial recognition, we get into some, uh, some interesting and, you know, at times disturbing uh, territory. Uh, Matthew Galt had an article in Vice last February titled Facial Recognition Software Regularly Misgenders Trans People, detailing how these systems were simply not built Built with trans or non-binary people in mind and can, quote, continue to reinforce existing biases.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, as with a lot of things, I think sometimes there is an illusion that Machines somehow will be free from applying biases to mm-hmm. humans that that humans apply to each other, but I think we, we've got ample evidence now that that is not the case. That human biases get quite easily mapped onto artificial intelligence uh, through assumptions used in the in the creation of these algorithms, or through the data sets they're trained on.
1: Right, and then and as Galt explores in the article, like part of it too is just like who's building these programs. You know, it's build, being built by programmers and engineers, people that are that may just not have have ever really given serious study to some of, like, say, the gender issues that are, uh, you know, inherent to the problem. Uh, He also mentions how past databases have, for instance, uh, misidentified black people in criminal databases and even in some cases... Had they failed to see black people at all,
0: yeah, like say, if they are trained primarily on datasets with lighter skinned faces right yeah in fact, uh, just last December,
1: December of two thousand and nineteen, the National Institute of Standards and Technology uh, in the u s tested one hundred and eighty nine facial recognition algorithms from ninety nine developers, which uh, includes like some big name developers, and found that they were far less accurate at identifying African American and Asian faces compared to Caucasian faces. And African-American females uh, were even more likely to be misidentified. Uh, Now, this was reported in in various places, uh, uh, but uh, the uh, article I was reading about it, uh, BBC News Tech's uh, article, Facial Recognition Fails on Race, Government Study Says.
0: Yeah, I've read about several cases like this. Uh, I mean, I think it's just so important. For people, especially working in the technology space to remember, you know, don't fall for the myth that it's unbiased just because it's a machine and not a right. person. People's biases end up in the machine. Right. The rules come from us. Okay, well, I think we're going to have to call the first episode right there. But uh, when we come back in the in the next in the series of episodes, we're going to be definitely talking about facial recognition in the organic brain. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll be moving on more to the history of technological facial recognition. We'll get to talk about Greebles. We love Greebles. <laughs> Greebles uh, uh, were new to me, but there's a whole world. We could do a whole podcast on Greebles. You might think they were new to you. They weren't new to you. We've talked about Greebles. We before. have talked about Greebles. Greebles have the most delectable spikes. Really? Okay. If well, you're curious, you'll have to come back next time to find yeah, out. Yeah,
1: come back for the Griebles. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, you can find us anywhere you find podcasts. Uh, if you want a, just a handy way to check us out, uh, go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, and that'll shoot you over to the uh, iHeart uh, uh, listing for our program. But wherever you get the show, just make sure that you subscribe. Make sure that you rate and review. These are great ways to help us out. And just tell a friend about the show. Uh, that also helps. And don't forget get our other podcast, Invention. Invention is a, a journey through human techno history.
0: Oh, yeah. I feel like we've been doing a lot, most of our technology stuff on Invention these yeah. days. And so, uh, so I'm glad to be getting back into the techno space a little bit on stuff to blow your mind today. Yeah, absolutely. Even if it is for a kind of dystopian sci-fi topic like this. <laughs> anyway, uh, huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.